Welcome to the Gold Digger podcast series, a series that investigates the mysterious decline of Australian rugby union. It's a fan's journey into the void to pick up the pieces of Australian rugby union and find a path forward to fortune and glory. I'm your host and humble rugby servant, Matt Durrant. And on today's episode... I've always thought that business and sport is the same. The same principles apply for, for success. The team started to develop belief in themselves again. And, and that's such a powerful thing to have. It still makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up because it was a, a, a remarkable bunch of players. This is episode seven, The Golden Era. And if you're joining me for the first time, I want to welcome you to the podcast. If you are a repeat listener, then thank you very much for your loyalty and your patronage. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. It's, it's, it's fun putting these episodes together. And actually, this one particularly has been a lot of fun because it has allowed me to go back to some really special interviews uh, that I felt incredibly honored to, to have with, with three people who uh, effectively shaped some of the best viewing experiences I've ever had of, of rugby growing up and watching Australia and, and the Wallabies. Just touching on the last episode, which was looking at the fans and, you know, how we how we react to what's happening in our own experiences. And I, I, I told you about the, the, the ranty email that I sent to Rugby Australia. I actually put a copy of it up on the Facebook uh, page if you wish to go and read it and uh, have a joke, have a laugh, maybe have a sledge. But it was interesting getting a lot of messages uh, in the week and even some emails from people with their own personal stories about you know, how much rugby has meant to them, but also how they got involved in the game and, and what keeps them interested. And there certainly seems to be a recurring theme of schools and clubs having the, the highest level of uh, connection and interaction. And, and that often results in people getting loud and getting passionate and very involved in the you know, the climatic moments of games. And there's obviously something there that has to be sort of dug into in terms of trying to get people to drive that level of passion and animosity and ferocity into Wallaby games. So it could be something we may talk about later on in another episode. But today we're going to leave all the, the fan frustration to the side and we're going to switch to joyful nostalgia we're going to go back in time. We're going to get in the DeLorean, and the DeLorean is set to the 26th of August, 1995. And on the 26th of August, 1995, rugby historians will know that date as the day that rugby union was made professional. The powers that be at the World Rugby, or the IRB, as it was then known, uh, met in a a hotel in Paris and and declared the game open, which was pretty monumental. Uh, Some would say a little too late, but anyway, it had happened. However, in 1995, it was also significant in rugby because of a World Cup that had occurred in South Africa. The South Africans uh, returning to the, the international fold with apartheid being repealed four years earlier, uh, were you know they, they hosted what is arguably one of the more memorable World Cups in in history. Uh, that image of of Nelson Mandela 
and uh, the South African captain Francois Pinar holding aloft the William Webb Ellis trophy after after beating the All Blacks uh, is is iconic. In fact, it was it was made into a, a Hollywood film directed by Clint Eastwood with uh, Morgan Freeman and um, Matt Damon playing Mandela and Pinar respectively. I'd like to see more rugby films, actually, just as an aside. Anyway, um, so it was a momentous uh, year. From a Wallaby perspective, it was probably a little bit for- forgettable. We we fell over at the World Cup. Uh, we we lost to the South Africa in the pool match, and then we were kicked out at the quarterfinal stage by our old foe, England, 25-22, with uh, Rob Andrew scoring a, a drop goal at the at the end, to, to clinch it for England. Unfortunately, that became a bit of a pattern in, in World Cups with English fly halves uh, pulling out drop goals at the death. But anyhow, it was a it was a changeover in Australian rugby. Uh, Bob Dwyer, who'd been coach, stood down. Several players, uh, Michael Liner, uh, uh, retired from the Wallabies at least. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a changing of the guard moment. And on top of that. Rugby had become professional, which meant the game had to change dramatically, I mean, virtually overnight. And the man who was in charge of that overhaul in Australian rugby was a former banker in John O'Neill. Now, I, I was able to reach out to John O'Neill for the documentary, and he agreed to sit down and have me interview him, which was very nice of him. It was also very good that he managed to fit me in on a work day, no less. So I met him down in Sydney near the Star Casino uh, at his office. He now is the CEO for the Star Entertainment Group. And he very kindly managed to fit me in between a couple of conference calls. I was told I may only have 45 minutes to an hour. And we we very, very easily went over that hour. And he didn't really seem in any rush to to get away, which was fortunate for me. I suppose when you're the CEO, you can make those rules. Context is everything, uh, and it's often forgotten that um, rugby league was had always been in the ascendancy uh, in 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 terms of direct competitiveness. I mean, there's AFL, of course, and and football, but the 13-man game, rugby league versus the 15-man game, that was where the real battle for hearts and minds was at, and rugby union had been. You know, I won't go back to the, the history of the split uh, in 1908, etc., but it, it's quite relevant as well. But in 91, um, the Wallabies won the World Cup and you know, it took rugby into a, into a different uh, league, well, excuse the pun, and, uh, and rugby, rugby league became a bit, a bit concerned about you know, rugby union. Ken Arthurson and John Quayle were, were running rugby league at that time. And they were on a roll. They were doing exceptionally well. And they declared war on, on rugby. It sounds a bit dramatic, but what it was all about is poaching players. They'd been poaching players forever, but they were after this, you know, in, in a generational sense, a really special bunch of players. Uh, Tim Horan, Jason Little, you know, Michael Liner, you name it. And... Rugby Union had to do something about it. it. It was the victim of its own success because, you know, winning the World Cup in 91 and, and a lot of money was coming through the door 
but not, none of it was going to the players. Um, I mean, they were getting a bit under the table, but nothing substantial above the table. And, and off the back of that you know, big threat from, from rugby league, and, and then rugby league itself got into the, uh, its own sort of civil war called the Super League War, along came you know, News Corp and you know, they bought the, bought the game, bought the game in the Southern Hemisphere, which is where the power resided, the three best rugby nations in the world, New Zealand, South Africa and Australia. And you know, out of that came Super Rugby, Super 12 as it was then called, um, the Tri-Nations, Inbound Tests, Curry Cup, NPC, etc. So, look, it's a US $555 million deal for 10 years. It was, um, in many ways, a player-led revolution. Won't bore you with all the details, but there was a, uh, an attempt uh, to counter the News Corp deal with, um, with a Kerry Packer-funded you know, uh, challenge from World Rugby Corporation fronted by Ross Turnbull. Uh, that fell away because ultimately the money wasn't there. And you know the brave new world which I inherited was the start of '96. Um, the game had been run by a lot of well-meaning volunteers. The prof professional era just wasn't about paying players; it was about the you know, professionalising the running of the game. And you know I came in; there was a, about 40 or 50 people working for the ARU. It was um, a pretty rustic organisation, as you would expect. And a lot went on around the ARU, because the power resided in the, the state bodies. But the period I was there, we established the ARU as the national governing body. We got our house in order, a lot of cost cutting, uh, getting, getting contracts uh, tidied up, a fair bit of litigation at the time. Uh, but slowly but surely, we we got through those first two or three really tough years, and uh, away we went. So as Australian rugby got its house in order and the off-field was being taken care of, what had happened on-field back in South Africa in 95 and then leading into 96 was a different story. Uh, added to that was this new super rugby competition known as Super 12, which had Obviously, the powerhouses of New South Wales and Queensland that had been around for many years, but a new third provincial Australian side in the ACT Brumbies. And for the Wallabies, well, they, they had to restart. They had a new crop of players that had to come through and find their way. And one of those players was John Eels, the 25-year-old lock from Queensland, who by that stage was almost a veteran of the team. He'd already featured in a World Cup win in 1991. As I referenced in a previous episode, I had a chance to sit down with John in Sydney in January of 2020. The, the 95 World Cup was a really tough experience. We went there, I think we had the talent. Uh, there was a few guys, I think, carrying injuries that didn't, didn't help our performance at the World Cup. But also, we, other teams had gone past where we were. And it was a bit of a, a reckoning at the end of that tournament and we came back and we we lost to New Zealand in a couple of test matches in Australia and New Zealand and then I became captain the next year and we got a bit worse after that. We, although we had some good successes but we had some really tough encounters against the All Blacks. The toughest encounter being the very first match of the first ever Tri-Nation series in 1996 
Australia went out to Wellington to play the All Blacks and were thumped 43 points to six, a record loss at that point in history. And a day that well, New Zealanders and certainly their captain, Sean Fitzpatrick, said was one of the best tests New Zealand had ever played. Well, the referee has said no side. The clock ticks over 76 minutes and 50 seconds. Maybe he stopped it a little bit earlier. 43 to 6, and the game is over. And New Zealand take five points in the Sanzar series and retain the Bernersloe Cup. Australia would go on to win the wooden spoon in that Tri-Nations, even though they had the same points as South Africa, they were behind on points percentage. But the next year, 1997, was possibly the worst of the slump, in which, once again, Australia failed to fire in the Tri-Nations, losing to the All Blacks and also having a, another record loss against the Springboks this time. Montgomery. Montgomery gets a brilliant pass to Yanni Dibia. That was absolutely brilliant by Montgomery. 61 points to 22. The most amazing thing. Lovely moment there on the left of your screen for Bramels. But what a second half that we've just witnessed. It's just been absolutely amazing. It was a bit bumpy around the Wallowies because, again, it's a bit of a history lesson. We lost, we were losing to the All Blacks in 95, 96, 97. And people were marching in the street and we'd lost, we'd lost the All Blacks six or seven times in a row. And there were you know, talk of overthrows and getting rid of the uh, chairman, getting rid of the CEO, me. <laughs> we always felt that we had the talent and I don't think we ever doubted that. But um, we just probably lacked a lot of confidence. Uh, confidence in our own ability and I think when you lose and then you lose again and you lose again I'm talking about every game but in the big games uh, it's it does play on your mind and, and the first thing you need to turn around is how do you build that confidence in yourselves and so I suppose as, as a team and as individuals within the team we had to look at okay maybe you don't win every game you play but there's there needs to be some positives that you take out of each each game there needs to be some markers of improvement that you're showing. And Greg Smith was coached through some really tough times. And a lot of people would look at those times and say, well, the Wallabies didn't, didn't improve at all through that time. But I think we did in some respects. We trained really hard. We built a, a very strong work ethic. Ultimately, you know, the coach, uh, Greg Smith, uh, went um, and, and then in came Rod McQueen. I'd managed to track down Rod McQueen and met him on a, a sunny Saturday up in Sydney's northern beaches, up in Collaroy, where Rod has lived for many years. In fact, he lives just a stone's throw away from the beach. He had taken a, a swim in his lap pool out the back of his backyard, so he was looking very fresh. Rod has a, a strong history with surf boats, and he still looks pretty fit today. Still looks like he could uh, get out there and, and, and tackle a surf boat even now in his prime. In fact, after our interview, he was planning to go for another beach swim. So uh, the man loves his water and loves his activity. This is him talking about how he got into coaching. I really hadn't thought about coaching much at all. In fact, I was, when I gave up playing, I was, uh, I was thinking about maybe being a, tra a trainer. So I helped out Ringa because I was fairly fit because I was uh, rowing surf boats. So I was uh, basically the trainer, first grade trainer and club trainer for quite a while. And I enjoyed that 
And it was, I think it was from that that I thought maybe um, I wouldn't mind giving coaching a go. Um, so I coached second grade. That was probably the, the that was my first coaching uh, job. And you know, coaching was always an outlet for me. Again, I, I enjoyed it. it was um, I had my business and I was working pretty hard, you know, setting up a new business around that sort of time. Um, and so the coaching was again, it was fun. I had some friends there. Um, in the uh, in the amateur days, a lot of the people I brought in were, I guess, in their own business as well. So, brought in you know, the, uh, the doctor was someone that I knew for, from rowing. The, the 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 trainer at that stage was another someone else I knew from rowing, and other other people from business. So it was um, it was a bit of fun at the same time. This fusion of sports and business would become a trademark for McQueen. While he was coaching his local club Waringa in in Sydney, he was also growing his business that was involved in advertising and merchandising. And he's been very public about his overall strategy about integrating both the business and employees successfully to achieve outcomes, something he managed to do with both his business life and his sporting career. His first major coaching gig, however, was with the Waratahs in 1991. Now, back then, tours were what? Waratahs and the Reds and the provincial teams would do. So the Waratahs that year toured to Argentina and New Zealand as well as playing Queensland twice and they also played an England representative team. At the end of that season the Waratahs actually won all of their games bar one which was a draw against the Argentinian team Tucumán. Nine of those Waratahs would go on to be in the main starting 15 of the World Cup winning Wallaby team of 1991 including the entire front row. In fact, two-thirds of that front row in Ewan McKenzie and Phil Kearns were from the same Ramwick club in Sydney. So in 91, um, we sort of tried to get a more professional approach for the, um, for the for Waratahs. Uh, we went over to Argentina earlier on. It was a World Cup year, so it was very important for them to do well. And so the goal was obviously to get as many players into the Australian side as we could. Um, and that was a really good year. really enjoyed um, being involved with that. Um, and again, because it was amateur, you know, we're, we're only training two, two nights a week um, and then you know, obviously playing on the Saturday. So it didn't take that much time and it wasn't as therefore a big burden on me as far as my business is, was concerned. So as Australian rugby came to terms with the professional era and the Wallabies were playing third fiddle to the All Blacks and the Springboks, Rod was part of another significant moment in Australian rugby history. The formation of the Brumbies. As we mentioned before, the Super 12 competition was funded out of Rupert Murdoch's massive investment in professional rugby, a US $550 million deal for 10 years. And that funded a new professional franchise in Australia. This team was to be based in Canberra, the nation's capital, and Rod was installed as the coach of this new franchise with a a player group that had a spine made up of the ACT Kookaburras, which was a representative team that had made waves in years leading up by beating New South Wales and also been very competitive in the hotly contested shoot shield competition. Out of all the teams from Australia, New Zealand and South Africa that were playing in the Super 12 competition, the Brumbies were the only team starting from scratch. So we're going, not only were we coming up with a new franchise, but we were now getting into professional rugby. For the first time, we had everyone coming from all around Australia and staying in the one, one place. So we basically had a base camp. That was the first time that happened. We had to come up with a name. We had to come up with a jumper. Had to come up with a way of playing. Uh, we had to bring people from all those different 
places all around Australia and unite them to a, to a common cause. And so it was, you know, it was, it was daunting, but it was great. And everyone had a great time over that period of time. And I think also because it was a little bit out of the mainstream and out of the way, we were allowed to do a lot ourselves without everyone knowing about it. So we actually put a lot of time and effort in it and changed a lot of things. I remember when we first came up with the pods and the lineouts, for instance, some of those sort of things came out with groups of players coming up with ideas and sat sitting around talking about it. And we, you know, we definitely had a you know, philosophy and a different way of playing over that period of time. And it was great to be able to sort of have a bit of a secret knowing that we'd, we'd done a lot of work and we were going to play the game differently. Um, and that made it all, all the more enjoyable. In their first season playing against the Waratahs, the Reds and all the best clubs from New Zealand and South Africa, this newly formed franchise, the Brumbies, managed to finish fifth out of 12 teams. And then the following year, they actually made the final, losing to the Auckland Blues. So naturally, with the Wallabies in, in peril at the end of 1997, it made sense that a coach with proven success at provincial level was handed the keys to the gold Ferrari. So by the time Rod McQueen inherited the Wallabies, he had a, a young playing group. He had a, a new captain, John Eels, who was now skipper after Phil Kearns had, had stood aside. And of course, John O'Neill was still there, uh, professionalising the code. I often call it the troika uh, of McQueen, coach, Eels, captain, me, CEO. Yeah, we weren't always best buddies. You know, we we all respected each other. We we had good open discussions um, behind closed doors, and more often than not, we landed in the same spot, and that was vital. Uh, the Rod's tenure and you know coming out of successful stint at the Brumbies in late '97, he, he it turned out he wasn't he wasn't the messiah. That, that people had been clamouring for. It was a bumpy, bumpy start. You know, we lost in Argentina and the tour to the UK that year wasn't terrific. Um, Rod went away over Christmas and you know, redrew the architecture and came to me with his plan. I've always thought that business and sport is the same. The same principles apply for, for success. And so, yes, I did use a lot of um, business principles, I guess, with the... Um, with the Wallabies and, and with the side and also um, I guess I, I use a lot of sporting analogies and so on with the business as well so they they kind of interact and you know I do believe in that so as you would with the business I put a business plan in so when you know when I um, was asked to, to put my name forward for the Wallabies I put forward a business plan and where I outlined what I thought should happen. We went through it, we costed it and away we went. Just like he had done during his former coaching stints at the, the club and the representative level, and through his businesses, Rod focused on familiarity between players, uh, creating a concentrated environment for high standards to be achieved, giving personnel the ability to, to have input in decisions, and where possible, allowing for innovation. Moving the team to a, uh, a base camp uh, firstly at Caloundra, later on at Coffs Harbour. Um, and then Rod recruited, you know, well, you know, people like Steve Nance came out of rugby league. He brought a new sort of training ethic. And Rod had a very different style to Greg. 
but but he was the right guy for the right time for Australian rugby and for the Wallabies because he brought in a, a real structure. He had success at the Brumbies. He brought in a structure, and through that structure and the adherence to that, uh, it, it started to the team started to develop belief in themselves again, and and that's such a powerful thing to have. 1998 would see the three Australian provincial teams, the Waratahs, Reds and Brumbies, having pretty middling performances in the Super 12 rugby season. The Reds finished the highest in fifth, and the Brumbies, after making the final the year before, dropped back to tenth. However, the Wallabies absolutely came out of the gates that year and surprised the Kiwis, jumped them in fact, at the Melbourne Cricket Ground in front of 75,000 people. The match was noticeable, more so for Matt Burke scoring all of Australia's 24 points. Matthew Burke misses, it doesn't matter. It's an eight-point victory to the Vodafone Wallabies. They have done it in style. They answered every New Zealand challenge in the second half. Matthew Burke with a scintillating man-of-the-match performance. Two tries, one conversion and four penalty goals. However, it was that second match of the Bledisloe Cup series with the All Blacks that would bring even greater honour. They're getting organised behind the scrum here. I think this might be a drive. Kefu and Cobain. Perhaps setting up the pace. Here they go, it's one of the ACT moves. Oh, they've tried to put space on Jason Little, and they have! That is a great try! The Wallabies have exploded across the park and score their third try, and that's shot the nation. 15-3. Critical periods in any matches just before and just after half-time, and the Wallabies... It would be a famous victory against the All Blacks in Christchurch, winning 27-23 to to secure the Bledisloe Cup. Although the Wallabies didn't go on to win the Tri-Nations, that was won by the reigning world champion South Africa, the Wallabies would achieve another rare feat by beating the All Blacks in a third matchup that season. Tim Horan saves it. It is a great victory for the Wallabies. And they have swept the All Blacks in 1998. It was the first time they'd beaten the All Blacks three times in a year since 1929. But the reality is, uh, compared to today, where we haven't won the Bledisloe since, I think, 2002, there's not a lot of marching in the street and not a lot of noise about that. But in those days, it really was... Uh, you know, beating the All Blacks was, you know, the benchmark. And in '98, we turned the corner, uh, beat them three blot. Remarkable performance. McQueen's put his stamp on the team after a bumpy start in '97. Uh, in '98, you know, Rod did some, you know, real groundbreaking stuff. Uh, John Eels came of age as a captain. When you've got it, when you've got a group of, a group of sports people who are involved in something together, striving to achieve something, but they're starting to see these you know, first small things happen in the right way and then bigger things happen in the right way. And then finally after that, the scoreboard starts turning in the right way. 
and that was a real realization that we were doing a few things right. I was interested in hearing from Rod McQueen about just what it was that was part of this turnaround. Curiously, one of the advantages that he thought the Wallabies had was in the two codes that had forever been a spanner in the works for the growth of rugby union in Australia, AFL and rugby league. Well, compared to amateur days, the, the pressures are obviously much greater for the captaincy, even for the coaching, etc. Because you now we went from training two to three days a week to seven days, thinking about it, having several sessions in that, and, and understanding what it was all about—professional rugby. So. It was a dramatic change, and, and you know, when you have a change like that, it doesn't just happen overnight. You've actually got to work on it and plan for it and, and see what's going to happen. You, know, you can't do things normally the, probably the way we did it before, and we had to sort of plan for that and understand that. And I think that was, um, whilst, it was, whilst it was tough, it was also exciting because everything was new. Going from amateur rugby to professional rugby overnight was, uh, was pretty amazing. And, from my point of view, it was good because we already had some professional sports, that is in rugby league and AFL. So we're actually able to gain a lot of things from them and understand what they'd been doing for so long as professional sports. Um, things like some of their technologies we were able to get. I think the fitness, for instance, we needed to, we knew we're now going to be training every day, every day of the week just about. So we needed a, a different type of a fitness and a different way to, to go about that. So we were able to get people from Rugby League to help us with those. And I think that was, from, from my point of view, from, from being in Australia with those professional sports around us, really helped us. Another possibly overlooked event in 1998 that might have significance was that first Wallaby match against England in June of 1998. Now, the Rugby Football Union back in England was having a dispute with the players over the scheduling. The net effect being that many of those English players, like Martin Johnson and Lawrence Delalio, never toured South Africa, Australia or New Zealand that year. Instead, they, they sent a second string side that was coached by the newly appointed coach, Clive Woodward. It was nicknamed the Tour from Hell, and the first game was against the Wallabies up in their cauldron of Brisbane. And it saw England get beaten by a record score of 76 points to nothing. The, the England side was completely powerless. And I, I remember the game pretty well. It was just try after try. It was sort of like watching a, a junior game where one team is just thoroughly better than the other. And that side was pretty powerless. Uh, and they had a lot of debutants, including a young fly half who was just out of school called Johnny Wilkinson. But the point is this. That cricket score match started the Wallabies' 1998 season, and despite the Poms being under strength, it would have been a considerable boost for that Wallaby player group. They then followed it up with two more thumping games against Scotland, who came to Australia and toured. That meant by the fourth game of the season, the opening Burslow Cup match against the All Blacks at the MCG, the Wallabies were battle-hard. They had full confidence. And interestingly... When you look at that team on paper, they had not one single positional change in any of those first four games of the season. In fact, Rod McQueen would only make one positional change during the whole Tri-Nations competition, and that was replacing Dan Herbert with Jason Little at outside centre for the third match against New Zealand. So with the Wallabies bouncing back in their own backyard in the Southern Hemisphere, their focus started to move north towards the 1999 Rugby World Cup in Wales and England. Here's Rod 
talking about the preparation? I think you know, leading into the World Cup, having two years, talking about you know, what we're going to do, um, they were really interesting, exciting times, I suppose. We, didn't, we never spoke about winning the World Cup, but we obviously set our goals. Um, that was all part of what we did. I think we, the early part we called the beginning, and then we had the, the journey, and the last part was our destiny. And obviously our destiny was to, you know, to go over there and come back with a, with a World Cup. So we basically had two years to look at it, and I think that we knew where we wanted to be in, in, within two years and what we had to do to get there. So we had to, you know, as an example, we had to sort of totally change the way we did our fitness training. So the players weren't used to that, but from day one in January, they were, they were doing a totally different way of things that they hadn't done before in the, on the field, and they needed to do that. So by the time we, we got to the World Cup, they were the fittest team going around and they were ready to play you know, what, what I'd call the more modern game of rugby. It wasn't the smoothest run in 1999. There were injuries that year to, to skipper John Eels, putting him out of a lot of lead-up games, and that challenged the leadership. And then during the World Cup, a veteran hooker and former captain Phil Kearns, he injured his foot, which ruled him out of the finals. Yet despite this, the team that would go out to try and win the World Cup, with the exception of two players, including Phil Kearns, who was injured, it was the same team that beat England, by that country mile margin of 76 points. And two-thirds of the team were also in that infamous South African thumping back in 1997 that we heard earlier. 61 points to 22. The most amazing thing. Lovely moment. The low point prior to that was in Pretoria in 97 when we got beaten 61-22, I think it was. And remarkably, you know, at the back end of... 99, um, many of that same team won the World Cup. It still makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up because it was a, uh, a remarkable bunch of players. As I said, you know, once in a generation for a lot of them and a terrific coach, uh, a great group of assistant coaches around Rod, the Jeff Millers and Tim Lanes and John Muggleton, you know, so many unsung heroes. And there was a great spirit in the team. Uh, they, they were decent blokes. They, they, they'd straddled the amateur and the professional era. So they knew, they knew the value of a dollar. And they also looked after their own discipline remarkably well. I, I didn't have to get too involved because the senior players, you know, looked after their, their, their own backyard pretty well and uh, that team that won in Cardiff besides John Eels there were several other players who who had who had captained Australia um, I mean Phil Kearns ended up being injured but Dave Wilson had captained Australia when John Eels was injured Tim Horan uh, Jason Little when you run through the names Matt Burke at fullback you know, Joe Roth on one wing, Ben Chun on another, you know, Timmy, uh, Timmy at, at, at 12, and then either Jason Little or Daniel Herbert at 13, and Steve Larkham and George Gregan, well, you know, hello. And then the forward pack had a, re a really great blend of, of tremendous skill, but a lot of grunt. You know, blokes like Owen Finnegan, Todd Kefu. Matt Cobain, they weren't, to be, they weren't to, be, to be messed with. 
Indeed they weren't. Just Google Todd Kafu and Trevor Brennan punch-up on YouTube. Now, the recruitment by Rob McQueen of Rugby League coaches to boost the Wallaby defence paid massive dividends at that tournament. Across all the six games in the World Cup in 1999, Australia only led in one try. Ironically, it was in their weakest match of the tournament against the USA in a pool game. Our try line was only crossed you know, once and, um, uh, and Jason Little was the captain that day and he has to live it down. <laughs> one, one Gerbler or someone like that scored the USA, the USA in, in Limerick. Not that we uh, haven't stopped reminding Jason of that. Yeah, the 1999 Rugby World Cup remains etched in my memory. I, I was still at school and so I had many nights with my family staying up late and watching the best of the best thrash it out in games across uh, Wales and England. The, the Wallabies managed to move through their pool matches pretty comfortably and they dispatched the host country Wales in the first quarter final. And that put them into a semi-final against the reigning world champs, the Springboks, in what was an absolute slobber knocker of a match in Twickenham. The game was a very tight contest, uh, there were no tries, and each team seemed to be trading penalties, getting the three points, and just staying neck and neck. And the game went into overtime. And of course, Springbok fly half Yanni De Beer, who had made headlines the week before with his penchant for valuable drop goal penalties, seemed to be perfectly positioned to repeat that performance and kick the Springboks into the final. But enter... Stephen Larkham. Eels off the top. Larkham. Herbert smashes through the middle. Gregan. Drop goal from Larkham. Up it goes. Could you believe it? Larkham has De Beer De Beer. He certainly has. I can't believe it. He could hardly stand on that foot. He looked up and he just whacked it. Just like George Gregan's match-winning tackle against Jeff Wilson in 1994, the Stephen Larkham drop goal in extra time at the 1999 semi-final against South Africa remains to be an iconic moment in Australian sporting history. And in rugby union folklore, it easily inspired an entire generation. And then just to complete the meal for Australian rugby fans... The other semi-final between France and the All Blacks provided arguably one of the most memorable matches in World Cup history. They're like terriers in those rucks at the moment. Dominici, he's going to go in. Dominici scores for France. They take the lead. Oh, can you believe it? Dominici can't. And here it is in French. So the stage was set. A team that only two years earlier had been struggling for form, now had a date with destiny to win rugby's highest honour for a second time. Kefu bumps off Manya. 
Foran, again that lovely little shift of foot. Suddenly he's got the forwards in front. Eels by himself into the 22. Gregan being hauled in. It's going to be a penalty to Australia at very least. 72,500 people filled the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. The Australians in the crowd were fired up but with nervous eyes on the silverware and the rest of the crowd just had eyes for whatever French team was going to turn on. Despite the Wallabies remaining in control, the game never really got away until deep into the second half. Right in the corner! I think it's Ben Thune who got over. And the Australians know that that's what could be the decisive moment. Ben Thune it is. The right wing. With victory in sight, the Wallabies maintained their solid defence that had stood them in good stead for the whole tournament. And they relied on their fitness to close out the match. And towards the end of the match, the Brumby combination of Gregan and Finnegan found a gap in the tired French defensive line. John Eels comes up with it, the second attempt, lovely inside pass, Gregan to Finnegan, go for the lineman. And he gets there. For a moment I thought he was not gonna go for it. Incredible. It's all opened up for him, and he's still looking for support. But the pass goes into touch, and that is it. Andre Watson brings down the curtain on the 1999 Rugby World Cup. Australia the winners, 35 to 12. They become the first country to win the trophy twice. A second trophy for their captain, John Eels, as well. He was part of that side in 1991, along with Tim Horan, along with Jason Little. The 99 win was, you know, it was, it was an incredible moment for us because a few of us had been involved in 91, but we really felt we'd just come along in 91. Well, I felt that, like other guys had worked harder for longer. Whereas 99, a lot of us had been through that journey, that dip, in performance and ranking and then that 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 climb up the hill so when we won the world cup in at cardiff um, against the french there was this huge sense of satisfaction but also a sense of relief and I, i've been in two world cup final winning teams and two world cup final winning change rooms and probably one of the overwhelming feelings number one is relief you, you you've done it yeah, you know, going into that game that there's going to be some things you can control, some things you can't. You can't necessarily control whether the opposition has a great day or not. Yeah, you can, you can minimise the role that luck plays, but you can't eradicate the role that luck plays in a game. So sometimes the, the bounce of the ball goes against you in rugby. So you've got all these thoughts going through your head and you, and you want to just concentrate on the things that you can control. But you also know that at the end of the 80 minutes, you know, there's going to be one team that's world champion and another team that's not. And you want to be in that first category. But you know that um, you, you can do everything that you can do to, to try to make that happen, but sometimes the, the luck goes against you. But, uh, so I think relief is the first thing. And, um, and then this great sense of satisfaction that you know you've achieved something really special, something that was special to you as a team something that was special to the broader group, you know, the families who sacrifice a lot for that team to have the opportunity to do what it does, your close friends, 
and something that's really special for a whole community of people in Australia, rugby followers, followers and others, that it means something to them. The thing I remember most, I guess, was you know, at the end of that game, seeing the players, how happy they were, how late they'd worked really hard to get there. And, and it was a different feeling for me. It wasn't like when I played rugby myself or when I was rowing surfboats because I, I wasn't part of it. I hadn't been out there in the field doing it. But it was really good from my point of view to see them and what they'd actually achieved and how hard they'd worked to, to get to that point. That was probably the thing that marked my, I suppose, my, uh, my mind most at that stage. Being there, you know, in the Royal Box that day, um, I'd had a heated negotiation with the organisers that, that if we'd won, because uh, they insisted on Rolf Harris and, and whatever, as the sort of Australian talent, uh, and we had no control over that, but, you know, I uh, pleaded with them to have uh, men at work singing, we come from the land, land down under if we'd won. And sure enough, they bled it out and the players did the victory lap. And I remember standing in the stand looking down at the likes of a Dan Crowley and, you know, some wonderful people uh, just with holding the trophy, thumbs up. And then the scenes in the dressing room afterwards were, you know, just joyous excitement and we doubled their bonus <laughs> on the on the on the spot, which was uh, uh, I do it every day of the week. You know, they um, mind you, there was a chant a chant going up saying, you know, come on, Johnny, double the bonus, and uh, and we did, you know, and um, and away we went, and you know, it was a, a party into the night, and uh, next morning we had to get get up and. Uh, onto the QF2 for the trip home. And the trip home was one big cocktail party. It was just uh, the Webb Ellis Trophy was passed around the plane, literally. Uh, rum and Coke, Bundy and, and Coke, and um, uh, fans getting their photographs taken with players. And, and then we got home and there was one victory parade after another. You know, the ticker tape parade down George Street to the Town Hall, same in Brisbane, same everywhere. and culminated in Canberra just before Christmas in 99 and uh, the Prime Minister uh, and, the, and Kim John Howard and Kim Beasley, the leader of the opposition, hosted a fantastic event in the Great Hall in Canberra and then we went back to the lodge for our, our last dinner together and uh, the Prime Minister and Mrs Howard uh, did us proud. They, um, they had a good swig out of the Webb Ellis Trophy, and uh, uh, and uh, yeah, you can't you can't write the script any better. And um, a privilege, real privilege, an honour to be involved. I was in the right spot at the right time. The Wallabies would leave Cardiff world champions and enter the new millennium with Australian Rugby Union poised for further greatness. They would retain the Bursloe Cup for another three years the longest period in which it has ever been out of the Kiwis' hands. And in 2000, the Wallabies would also win the Tri-Nations tournament against New Zealand and South Africa for the first time, along with the previously won Cups against the Home Nations and, of course, the Bledisloe Cup and the World Cup. The Wallabies would be the first team to have every rugby trophy in the Cabinet at the same time. That followed up in 2001 with a series victory against the touring British and Irish Lions, 
who some would argue was one of the greatest Lions squads ever assembled, featuring greats like Martin Johnson, Johnny Wilkinson, Jason Robinson, Brian O'Driscoll, Keith Wood, and Scott Cornell. Rod McQueen and John Eels would both retire in 2001, going out on top. Rod remains the most successful Wallaby coach we've ever had, with a 79% win rate and a 71% win rate against the All Blacks. And John Eels finished his international career with 86 caps, 55 of those as captain, and has the second highest win rate of Wallaby players in the professional era, with 77%. The highest player, out of interest, is Tim Horan. The ACT Brumbies, led by the Wallaby half combination of George Greer and Stephen Larkham, would win their first Super Rugby title in 2001, and it was the first Super Rugby title won by an Australian province. The golden era, as we now refer to it, of Australian Rugby Union was, was made all the more golden by the sport becoming a top-shelf feature of the Australian sporting landscape. This is probably best illustrated by the record crowd of 109,874 who watched that game of the century in Sydney in 2000 at the Olympic Stadium. And with Australia due to host the World Cup in 2003, the sky just seemed the limit for rugby union in Australia. Yeah, none of this came easily. It was you know, well thought through, well planned. But our, our vision for not just the Wallabies, but our vision for Australian rugby was consistent, uh, clear, unambiguous and understandable. And, you know, it paid off. You know, you'd, one of my great, more usual sayings is success is not an accident. You know, success you know, comes through a lot of hard work. You know, that saying that, that golfers use that, isn't it funny, the more you practice, the better you play. Well, it's a bit, a bit the same with the Wallabies in that era. We were successful because we, we planned well, but then we ex executed even better. And we were very agile. Uh, Rob is very open to ideas. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we had harmony. You know, and even around the bonuses in 99, there was no um, involvement by the Players Association. That was, you know, John Eels and Tim Horan, maybe Brett Robinson, I think, came to see me about bonuses for the World Cup. And half an hour later, shook hands, done. Now, you know, that was, uh, that was a unique period, but it was a, unarguably a good period, you know. So when people say, oh, that's, that's a bit misty-eyed, you know, well, no, the facts speak for themselves. It was a golden era for Australian rugby. And many, many, many people deserve credit, you know, both on the field and off the field. We had a great management team, uh, we had good leadership off-field and we had good leadership on-field. And that's the key to any company's success. And it's here we'll leave it for now. It was a remarkable run indeed for a country that had spent most of the 20th century in the middle of the pack of the Tier 1 countries with glimpses of brilliance. The golden era of Australian rugby from 1998 to 2002 are five important years that should remain in the memories of us fans and perhaps even today's players and coaches. It's a reminder of just how much power the performance of the Wallabies can have in galvanising 
the entire country, rugby and non-rugby followers alike. And just how significant the Wallaby brand remains overseas in the minds of Kiwis, Poms and Saffers, who have all had their dreams crushed at some point because of a Larkham drop goal, a Gregan tackle, a Joe Ruff try, a Harrison line-out steal or an Eels conversion in Wellington. And it's also a timely reminder that a country that is facing adversity, both on and off the pitch, can still turn it around. While rugby is a different beast today than it was in the mid-1990s, many of the same conditions and ingredients for Australian rugby's success remain there. We've been down and out once before and risen back. We can do it again. If you'd like to know more about this part of Australian rugby history, I'm highly recommending Rod McQueen's book, One Step Ahead, which covers both of his business and coaching career, uh, his foray into the, the Waratahs and the Brumby stints, and of course his time as Wallaby coach, and John O'Neill's autobiographical book, It's Only a Game, which covers a lot of the off-field politics and dynamics involved in running the ARU and, and the early days of, of Sansa. And, and I won't leave out John Eel's biography, which is also a good read and was actually penned by a fellow Wallaby and person who I've interviewed previously and we've heard him in a past episode, Peter Fitzsimons. If you haven't already done so, please like and subscribe the podcast on whatever platform you're choosing to use, whether on Spotify, Google, um, Apple, a whole bunch that I've never heard of, but we're, we're there, so you don't really have to go far to find us. Uh, if you can give me a review, that would be fantastic. And keep your messages and comments coming. See if we can maybe do a bit more of a, a mailbag section on the next episode. Anyway, till then, I'll catch you next time. This is the Gold Digger podcast series, a spin-off from the new feature documentary film Gold Digger, The Search for Australian Rugby, which will be coming out very soon. Brought to you by me, director and host Matt Durrant and sponsored by whoever wants to reach out and pay me to have their name up in lights music is by makeup and vanity set sourced from musicbed.com check out our facebook page at facebook.com slash golddiggerrugby follow us on instagram for pretty pictures and twitter for banal chatter until next time keep on digging